Good morning, Riverbend. So good to see you. Hope you're doing well. Welcome back to my living room. It's been another week of shelter in place, and I think we're all going a little bit stir crazy. And I have still not had a haircut, which is driving me and my family nuts at this point. They're all making fun of me ruthlessly. But despite all of that, we're really doing good, and I hope you are too. In fact, I've been praying for you all week long. In particular, what stuck out to me is Colossians chapter 1. I've just been praying that the Lord would fill you uh, with the revelation of his will and his wisdom, that he'd fill you with his power, and he'd just reveal his heart to you. So if there's anything that I can do or our church can do to serve you, we'd really jump at the, at the chance to do that. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, one thing really quickly before we launch into a teaching from the scriptures, please be following us on Instagram and Facebook. Also, please be checking our website really regularly as well. Uh, we expect to hear from the governor's office sometime early next week uh, about reopening guidelines. Now, we don't exactly know what that's going to look like. We haven't been given a whole lot of information yet, but we do know that there's going to be some information about the reopening of the state of Oregon and maybe even Deschutes County. And we're excited about that. And I'm actually really pumped about the, what our team has been able to come up with in terms of creative ways to gather and some new things that God might be wanting to do in our church as we head into our future. So please, please, please stay up to date. Again, don't have a ton of information yet or even a timeline, but we do know we're going to be hearing from the governor's office sometime this week. So as always, let's dive into a teaching from the scriptures. Open with me to John chapter 10. That's where we're going to get started. And then um, let's begin with the word of prayer. Father, we just want to say we love you. And we're so grateful that you call us your children. And in fact, now more than ever, we're clinging on to that promise and that reality. Thank you so much, Jesus, for not withholding from us and not holding back your love. And um, thank you for how you went to the cross for me and for my friends. And we're really longing to hear from you today. There's been so many of us that have been dealing with uh, adverse life situations like losing our jobs and just incredible strain stress on our relationships and a lot of us are going through really hard times and so we're desperate for you and we really need you. So God, would you speak with power and authority today? Would you come empower Jesus? We wanna be like you, we wanna be shaped into your image. So here we are, your kids, waiting to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So if you've been following along um, with us through this whole like COVID-19 pandemic, you know that we see this as an opportunity, sort of the disruption in our everyday lives as an opportunity to give our full and undivided attention to Jesus. Lord, like, what do you want to accomplish in this time? What do you, God, want to do in this moment, in me, in our church, going forward? What do you want things to look like? And how are you shaping us, right? There's all kinds of things that we can't do right now because of COVID-19. Uh, we're experiencing one of them. We're not able to gather like normal right now um, and other things like that. But I've been challenging us and I really want to keep challenging us to see this as an opportunity to reclaim the stuff that we're normally too busy for or are underemphasized in our discipleship to Jesus because of everything that's going on 
the frenetic pace of Western culture and all of that. So um, I've been covering a lot of other topics around the same sort of macro subject, if you will, um, in our midweek podcast, Following Jesus into a World in Crisis. We've released about 10 episodes and I've had a ton of fun. In fact, I'm just really glad that our church is starting to dip our toe into some of these really important conversations like redemptive action, becoming a non-anxious presence. So if you haven't uh, gone back and listened to those, please do that. Or maybe even if you already have, you want to give those another listen. It's well worth your time. But um, when I say giving our full attention to Jesus today, I want to focus on one topic in particular. And one of the things that I mean by giving our full and undivided attention to Jesus is practicing silence and solitude. It's one of the best ways that I know how to give my attention to Jesus. And your attention is really important. And so now we're just teaching our hearts and learning from the scriptures how to give our attention to Jesus. And silence and solitude, if you don't know, if you're unfamiliar, is a habit that is straight from the life of Jesus himself and his teachings and all of that. It's It's all about spending intentional time in the presence of God alone and in the quiet. So let's first like anchor this biblically and then let's talk about how we practice it. So Luke chapter 5 verse 16 says this, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In fact, in the book of Luke, you can see this sort of um, trajectory that the more time Jesus spent with others, serving others, healing them, teaching them, ministering to them, all of this stuff, the more time he spent doing that, the more time he spent in silence and solitude. It's this really fascinating study. You can chart it really in the book of Luke. It's fascinating. Um, Luke chapter 22, the sort of the end of the book, right before Jesus goes to the cross, in verse 39, it says this, Jesus went out as his usual to the Mount of Olives to pray. So this is woven into the fabric of Jesus's daily life. Now, the reason why I think this is such an important practice for us right now in the life of our church is because silence and solitude is one of the best ways that I know of from the scriptures that addresses our formation. And remember, our COVID-19 response is about what we're doing to love our neighbor and all of that, all of these things that we've sort of lined out for us to do. But also a super important question is who are we becoming, right? We, we want to deal with the stuff that's going on beneath the surface and really get everything out of this opportunity. And really what we believe that we're seeing is that God is wanting us to ask, ask this deeper question, who are we becoming? Now, God has forgiven us in Jesus. He's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He's given us a brand new life. And now he's also reshaping us into Jesus-like people. This is one of your most important goals in your life is to become a Jesus-like person. In fact, um, we have made this our family goal in the Rothrock home. In fact, Isabel, um, my eight-year-old daughter, has memorized it, made all kinds of art projects during um, our self-quarantine around this family goal. We want to love Jesus passionately and follow him faithfully in the power of the Spirit for the good of others because he's coming back soon. This is what we are shaping our whole lives around this goal. And this should be your goal as well, that you are becoming a Jesus-like person. So um, 
the silence and solitude is a fantastic way to do that. So here's what God does in silence and solitude. God is doing the heavy lifting. He's doing a lot of shaping of us in silence and solitude. And here's what it looks like. He First, he deals with our emotional unhealth. For a lot of us, including myself, we are unaware of the ways that we are broken and how God might be wanting to reform us. Or we're aware of it, but we're unaware of how to actually change. But in silence and solitude, God does what only he can do. He's the one who does this deep work of change in our hearts. And we're going to talk about that today. Number two, God connects us with his power and he recharges us. Last week, if you were here um, in my living room for the video teaching last week, we talked about relying on the power of God. And when we practice silence and solitude, and when we put that into practice, it's about more than just sort of getting a devotional thought for the day, although a lot of times it includes a devotional thought or something like that. It's about stepping into the flow of God's power. So you see, it's about operating as spirit-filled people. And as we practice silence and solitude, that's what God does. He connects us with his power and he recharges us. I've had some friends pray over me uh, that I would be recharged in this season, and I certainly have been. And that's mostly to do with silence and solitude. Number three, God transforms us into compelling witnesses of the risen Jesus. This one's so important for all of us to understand that we don't see silence and solitude as separate from our hope-filled expectation for spiritual awakening. Most of you know we're in the middle of a 24-7 prayer movement asking God to bring spiritual awakening in our city and region. Now, we believe that the renewal that God wants to do uh, and bring to our whole geography is not just out there. It begins within us. The renewal that God wants to bring starts with us, and it actually spreads from us, his people, who are renewed into his image, taking it into the world. And so um, these ideas of being alone in the quiet with God and participating in God's revival are not separate. They're actually interconnected and we have to get that right. And every major awakening in the history of the church that I know of begins with people who are themselves renewed into the image of Jesus. And I think, again, silence and solitude has a ton to do with that. So John chapter 10 and verse 2 is sort of some of the biblical frame for this conversation. Verse 2 says this, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Okay, so we're picking this up midstream, but Jesus is talking about how he is the good shepherd. The gatekeeper opens the gate, verse 3, for him, and the sheep listens to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought them out, all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And verse five, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. I love this passage so much. At the end, verse 27, it says this, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. So part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to listen intently to the voice of God and to follow where he leads us. And we do that in 
silence and solitude. In fact, this is a core principle of silence and solitude. So what I want to share with you is just a an eight-stage pattern of silence and solitude to just sort of help you help get you started or to reinforce your existing practice of silence and solitude. So hopefully this is helpful. I want to share with you just how you're going to do this this week. I know that this has been a life-giving practice for me during this time. I'm also going to share with you why I think this is such an important time uh, to like begin this habit if you haven't already. So step number one or stage one is to withdraw. So the frenetic pace of life in the modern West, our tech addictions, and a whole myriad of other things are conspiring against your time alone in the quiet with God. Even in Jesus's time, the first century, Jesus understood this reality. In fact, right, Jesus was a, a very busy person. He had all kinds of demands on his time, all kinds of people pulling for his attention. And your attention is such an important thing. So what Jesus knew intuitively, that if he was going to spend time with God and enjoy God's presence and give God his intention, he would have to get alone in the quiet. And that's exactly what he does. And he teaches us to do the same. Henry Nouwen, who's this amazing uh, Catholic thinker, theologian, he says this, in solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no phone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. So he's heading on something that I think is super, super important. Really, it's the real thing. So um, distraction, we're talking a lot about distraction, but we talk a lot about distraction as though it's happening to us. But in reality, distractions are sometimes things that we do subconsciously to distract ourselves from the real thing. So the real question is, are distractions are coping mechanisms and what are we distracting ourselves from? Henry Nouwen understood this and he was um, fully aware of the fact that his distractions were really just ways that he was coping from the real stuff that maybe God wanted to do. So we're gonna get more into that as we go along today, but just be aware of those tendencies in yourself. The second stage in this eight stage pattern of silence and solitude is rest. Now for me, probably similar to you, some of the best times that I've enjoyed throughout this whole time of shelter in place has been just enjoying my family, sitting on the porch and watching the sun go down and enjoying a glass of wine, watching the kids run around. Like really, not really, we haven't been up to a whole lot, right? It's not like we're being really productive or doing a bunch of stuff. We're just not even really talking all that much. We're just enjoying each other. Although there is obviously some conversation, but it's not like normal everyday life. We're just enjoying each other. And I think sometimes, again, we're just addicted to productivity that we forget about just being and resting. In fact, if think about this. If you're married and your relationship to your spouse was just meetings of productivity, like, hey, how, how are you doing with your wife? Oh, great, we're doing great, we're super productive, we're hitting all the benchmarks and all the goals that we've set ourselves, set for ourselves. You might think 
that, wow, that person's super type A. Or you might think, actually, that's actually pretty unhealthy if your entire relationship just consists of productivity, of getting crap done. And the reality is, is that the same is in our relationship to Jesus. Sometimes we treat him like that. We treat him as this person we come to, to deal with our problems mainly, or to do what we need him to do so that we can get on with our lives or whatever. But in reality, so much of being in the presence of God is simply that. It's being. It's not necessarily doing. And some of us are just soul tired. And um, by that, I mean we are exhausted emotionally. Maybe it's been a heavy season of your life. I know that for me, it certainly has been. So this is a time of recharging resting to recharge. And before you can really even deal with the deep emotional stuff that's going on inside of you, you just need rest. Sometimes if you're in a a time of silence and solitude, you might just fall asleep. In fact, Elijah, one of the stories we're gonna be looking at in a minute in 1 Kings chapter 18, that's exactly what happened. He was spending time with God and he just fell into a deep sleep. And in silence and solitude, you're not actually escaping your issues like you might be doing if you're just binge watching Netflix or whatever coping mechanism of your choice is, it's actually recharging. So in Silence and Solitude, we recharge so that we can truly deal with the stuff that's going on beneath the surface of our consciousness and not just escape from it. Remember remember one of our favorite lines from Jesus, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 through 30, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened in, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Unlike any other time in the history of Western civilization, we are hunkered down at home We went from going a million miles a minute to having to slow way down most of us. Now, we still have a lot of work responsibility. There's all kinds of things that you're doing, but by and large, you have a lot more time just at home to be able to rest in the presence of God. And I encourage you to not let this moment go by. Reopening is happening. There's a moment to get back to life as normal, but for right now, Take this opportunity to rest. Third stage in the pattern is wait, right? Which is, again, some of these things are so counterculture, upstream to culture. We're going to wait on God. And um, what this means, um, a, 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 a great Christian author, Carlo Corretto, puts it like this. God comes like the sun in the morning when it is time. We must assume an attitude of waiting, accepting the fact that we are creatures and not creator. So he's hitting on something really important here, that God is, of course, he's the one who is setting the agenda. He's the one who's directing our time. He's the one directing our attention. He's the one directing our emotions. And in silence and solitude, as Dallas Willard puts it, We stop making demands on God and ourselves. It is enough that God is God and we are his people. So we're simply waiting on the Lord. And again, this is a very counterintuitive, especially if you identify with me as being type A. 
a one on the Enneagram, which means I like to uh, be accomplished and to have a lot of things, I'm a determined person. So sometimes this feels counterproductive and a lot of times it's actually the point. Um, in fact, I was doing some reading this week in the book of Acts and I noticed this again, I think I made this um, observation once or twice before, but it hit me again in a new way. Whenever God moves in the book of Acts, which is this book with all kinds of action packed into it, it's because the people of God were waiting on him. Let me say that again. Whenever God moves with power in the book of Acts, this book that's filled with action, it's because the people of God were waiting on him. Pentecost, they're waiting on him. Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, he's waiting on him. Peter, he's waiting on him. Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, they're waiting on the Lord and then the Lord speaks. Such an important part of our um, discipleship and our formation is waiting on the Lord and then the Lord speaks and moves us to action. But it's not action first, it's waiting on the Lord and then action. Again, it feels unproductive, but it's kind of the point. We're releasing expectation, demand on ourselves and God to be productive. And then he works in the way he wants to work, not in the way that I think he should work. And we're coming into the flow of his will and his wisdom and his power and his authority rather than trying to chart our own path. Waiting on the Lord is so critically important. Step four in uh, the eight-stage pattern of silence and solitude is um, we feel. We feel our emotions. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this in all of the scripture is the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. He's just come off of like this huge victory. It was a high point of his life. His prophecies were coming true. He was calling down miracles from heaven. And there was this major revival going on throughout northern kingdom throughout the northern kingdom of Israel and there was just really only one problem and that problem was King Ahab and Queen Jezebel wanted Elijah dead and so he's running away and into the wilderness and he's just um, seeking refuge he's trying to survive really and he just crashes like I described before and in body and in spirit he just completely falls apart he shouts something like, God, I'm done, kill me now, or something like that. And then he just falls into a deep sleep. So I think it's safe to say that Elijah was in a bad way emotionally. And this is, at, this is why at least half of us don't actually want to pursue silence and solitude. Because in silence and solitude, things get really real. The stuff, the, the negative emotions, the negative thought patterns that have sort of been beneath the surface of our consciousness when we're noisy and busy, now all of a sudden, as we're alone with God, they come rushing to the forefront of our mind. And this is hard for a lot of us to deal with. And when you're alone in the quiet with God, this can be really unrelenting. It's just all that you can think about is the things that are broken, the things that are not right, the things that you need help with, the despair, the, the, the anxiety, the depression, what, whatever your case may be, in the presence of God, in the quiet, a lot of times before any healing goes on, there's this real sense of, of pain and of negative emotion. Henry Nouwen describes this as 
monkeys jumping around in his brain like a banana tree. Or excuse me, jumping around in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Said it right the second time. But what's so funny to me about that is Henry Nouwen was, was known as this intellect, this great intellect. And this is how he describes his own thoughts when he's alone in the quiet with God. It actually gives me a lot of hope. But Jesus, he knows this tendency of ours to sort of want to avoid our pain and to sort of um, uh, artificially cope with our pain rather than deal with it. And so silence and solitude is Jesus giving us a grace-filled, spirit-filled practice to deal with our emotional unhealth. And when you set it all aside and you set aside that coping mechanism of choice, he goes to work deep in our hearts and he is the one who really heals us. And so we don't actually have to be afraid of all of those things coming to the surface because the Lord is the one who's here to heal us. So we need to give ourselves permission to feel all of our emotions. I'm speaking particularly to the men in our church because this is actually something that we're taught is um, as masculinity, is to just not deal with our emotion but suppress our emotion. And some of us are better at this or worse at this than others depending on which way you look at it. Um, But in the way of Jesus, we don't want to just pretend as though these things don't exist or sweep them under the rug as they say. We actually want to process our negative emotion and allow God to do a deep work of healing and formation. Which leads us to step five in the process, which is naming our emotions. We want to name our emotions. So um, God has made you this way. You're a relational creature. He's made you with emotions. You're going to have them. He expects you to have them. He understands them better than you understand them. And he wants to reform you. So um, I've been uh, doing a lot of uh, pastoral work over the last decade, actually more than a decade now. And in my years of, of doing this, I've noticed that the negative emotions and the negative thought patterns that often hold us captive Uh, And they actually keep us away from uh, experiencing the blessing and the power of the presence of God. um, Generally fall under these four categories. Lies that we believe typically about our identity. Fears. Unbelief, usually connected to anxiety. And unforgiveness. Lies, fears, unbelief, and unforgiveness. So a lot of times we just believe lies about ourselves. I'll give you one example from our family. First, let me say that um, in our marriage, when there's a problem, it's 90% of the time my fault or 90% my fault, given our track record. So that's just how it is. But Grace is human too. Believe it or not, my wife is human too. And um, I remember early on in our marriage, Grace would dig in, like become really stubborn on small little things that didn't seem like they warranted the response that I was, I was getting. And I'm equally as stubborn, so we were having these moments where we just couldn't, we were at an impasse um, on small things. And Grace, who's extremely agreeable and just an amazing person, a really um, easy to get along with, would be digging in really hard on these, on these things. And then one, one time as we were having this spirited conversation, if you will, it came out. She said that the reason why I'm sticking 
um, putting my foot down on this is because people have called me a pushover my whole life. And that was so shocking to me because never in my experience of grace has she ever been a pushover. But because that was spoken over her when she was young, she received that and internalized that as a part of her identity is that she didn't have a strong enough charisma or personality or whatever and she was just being bowled over, pushed over by others. It wasn't true, but it was something that she internalized and then it was impacting our relationship. We were able to work through that together and I said, who says you're a pushover? That's not true. And I just spoke that out as being a lie and now she's basically perfect and I still have a ton of stuff that I have to work on. But that's just an example of lies that we believe. It's an easy example. There's a lot more deep-seated, really difficult ones that you might have to work through. It might be something that a family member spoke over you when you were young. It was maybe something a teacher said or a coach or somebody who was extremely important in your, in your life, had a lot of authority in your life, spoke something powerful over you and, it, it, and you internalized it and it's fundamentally not true. This is why as parents and as leaders, I want to encourage you to please use your words really, really wisely. Don't assign negative labels on people. Don't call your kids bad kids. Tell them they made a bad choice, but please don't call them bad kids. It's such an important thing. That's an example. Such an important thing that we speak life over people, especially because we have authority in their lives. And so um, we have a tendency to internalize lies that are untrue about us, and they um, affect us for sometimes months and years. Also, fear, fear of failure. This is something that I wrestle with a lot myself. Fear of failure, unbelief, that usually that's almost always connected to anxiety. What if God doesn't come through on the things that he promised? Ultimately, our anxieties often come back to that. And then unforgiveness, this is huge. A lot of times we're avoiding silence and solitude, time alone with God, and all of the good stuff that God wants to bring in our life because we have harbored unforgiveness of people that have wronged us, people who have hurt us, and we haven't figured out how to release them and to forgive them. Or maybe we have just held that grudge on purpose. And um, God wants to get all of those things out of your way so that he can fully form you into his image. So in the presence of God, we feel all of these feelings and our temptation is to just run back to all of our coping mechanisms. But when we sit in the presence of God and don't suppress them, we name them. The things that were in the shadows, the things that were, um, were previously um, beneath the surface of our consciousness, we're, we're seeing them clearly, we're calling them out, and they're out in the open. And then what we do is we want to release them to God. Why? Because God is the one who can deal with these things. He's the one who has the power to do something about the lives that you're believing or the fears that you have or the anxiety or the unbelief or the unforgiveness. He can actually deal with these things and um, he can make you whole. So we name them out loud in the presence of God and he begins to do a transformative work, right? We're gonna get onto that, but before we get onto that, the next step or the sixth step in, in this eight stage pattern of silence and solitude is we hear. We hear the voice of God. This brings us back to John chapter 10 and verse two. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them 
and they follow me. In the quiet place, this is so vitally important. In the quiet place, God speaks. This is the first, remember, this is the first thing that God does in the beginning. When he creates the cosmos, he speaks it into into existence. The voice of God, the word of God is so incredibly powerful and he continues to speak today. If we are his people, if we are his sheep, we hear his voice. We need mentors, we need counselors, we need pastors, we need parents. But my guess is that you've heard me speak a lot. You've heard your mom speak to you a lot. And maybe you hear a lot of the same things from the people who dearly love you. What you really need is for God to speak over you. And he is. You just need to turn down the noise long enough to hear his voice. So what he does when we have felt all of our emotions and we've named all of our emotions and then we sit and we hear from God. What Jesus does is he replaces our lies, the the lies that we've believed. He replaces our fears, our insecurities, our uh, unbelief, our anxieties, our unforgiveness, and he replaces them with what we need, the truth. He speaks the truth about us, over us, and directly to us. He speaks things like, I am a child of God, or you are a child of God. You are beloved of the Father. You are holy and blameless. You are an heir in the kingdom of God. So when I hear people say, man, I'm just a, I'm just a sinner, or I'm just an awful person, or I'm just a complete failure, I want to say, stop right there. And did, have you heard what Jesus said, has said about you lately? Again, We're big on the power of Jesus. We're big on the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And when he went to the cross, he said that this is now is what's true about you. You are a child of God. You are an heir in the kingdom of God. You are a brother with him in the family of God. You are holy and blameless. So you might sin, but you're not a sinner. You might fail, but you're not a failure. You might have depression, but you're not a depressed person. Like the, the truth about you is who Jesus says you are. That's the most true thing about you is who Jesus says that you are. And so often our identity has been shaped by other people and what other people have said about us. What we need is to turn down all that noise and to hear from Jesus himself. I can say it to you. And I will, and I'll continue to say it to you. Maybe there's something special about this moment for you, but you also need to hear from Jesus himself in the quiet and hear his voice speaking over you. And then that leads us to stage seven in this process. Be transformed. When we hear the voice of God, after all that we've been through in this process, we are transformed. Henry Nouwen, again, in The Way of the Heart, solitude is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. So what's happening as we hear the voice of God, we've named all of our stuff, we've felt our emotions, is that we are able to get rid of them, we're able to release them and those negative thought patterns, and we're able to give them instead to God. So the truth is, replacing the lies. Uh, 1 Peter 5 chapter, uh, 1 Peter 5 verse 7, 
Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Psalm 55 verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Psalm 62 verse 8, trust in him at all times. Um, you people, pour out your hearts to him for God is our refuge. One of my favorites, Philippians chapter 4 verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what we are learning here is this, this pattern throughout all of Scripture that teaches us to cast our cares on the Lord. And these things that have been holding us captive, giving them to God and instead receiving the truth. And what begins to happen is that deep work that God has been wanting to do begins to really take shape in, uh, in our hearts. He's building you up. He's building you up. He's maturing you. He's uh, taking you on this process that's called sanctification. He's uh, perfecting your character. All of that is happening in silence with God. And it's, of course, not all in one day. We want the quick fix, we want the weight loss pill or whatever that changes everything overnight. That's not how it works. But certainly, day after day, over a long period of time, you better believe God is doing a deep work in your life and you are being changed on like a deep, visceral level. You are changing and you are becoming brand new. Remember, what Nowen says, it's the solitude's the place of conversion where the old self dies and the new self is born. And then you are able to re-enter, re-enter. Um, so you're coming back into your normal everyday life. You're ready to approach your kids again, your job again, your coworkers, your family, your, the people you're in school with, whatever the case may be, you're ready to re-enter. So um, I wanna just wrap up today by sharing with you why I think that this time might be the best time in your lifetime to make this a habit that you never let go of. And the reason for that is this. Prior to COVID-19, the most common answer that any of us would get if we polled 100 people, how is your week going? Like 98 out of 100 of those people would say, busy, busy. Busyness has been the toxic thing that keeps us away from the presence of God. And it has become the Christian excuse for not spending time alone in the presence of God. And now you may still be busy, granted that's true, but everything, all of your rhythms, all of your habits, all of your responsibilities are on the table and are being reprioritized. Now, more than any other time in the history of your life so far. Everything is being reshuffled and reprioritized. So now is the time to start building in new habits. What are the new habits you're gonna build? You're gonna build, we do, we're in, new science tells us that we are creatures of habit. I mean, it's very, very true. 60 to 70% of what we do every single day is purely by habit. All of those habits are being shaken up right now. What are going to be the habits that shape you going forward? Now, like never before, is a perfect opportunity to cultivate the right habits going forward. 
So you won't have to say, oh, I'm just chronically, toxically busy and hurried all the time. But you're actually building into your life intentional time in the quiet. I'll leave you with one thought from A.W. Tozer. The spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total will of God for his people. This is what you were made for, is to be alone in the presence of God and to be his child. And for him to move you and transform you into his image. And then, of course, to send you out into his world with his message of hope about Jesus. This is what you were made for. It's not reserved for elite Christians. It's for you. And I just deeply, as your friend, as your pastor, as your brother, I just deeply want you to experience this life that comes with spending intentional time in the quiet with God. So make a commitment today to spend intentional time in the quiet. You can join our prayer movement, pray for an hour every day. You can do that. Pray for an hour every day. Go to prayband.org, sign up for an hour to pray, and just take an hour and be alone in the quiet with God. If that's too daunting for you, take 15 minutes. Make a commitment to be alone in the quiet with God. Let me pray for you now. God, we thank you so much that you are who you say you are. You never go back on your word. You never hold out on us. You are who you say you are. So as we come to you, we begin this new practice or we reinforce this practice, we are asking you, would you do that deep work of change that you have promised? We want to hear your voice. We want to follow where you lead us. Jesus, thank you. You're a good king. You're a good shepherd. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Grace and peace.